Welcome to the View from the Valley podcast by Delaware Valley Classical School. I'm Anthony Erty, head of school. Now, more than ever, education is a battle for our children's minds and hearts. On this podcast, we discuss classical Christian education and what it looks like in practice. For more information on what we do here, visit dvclassical.org. So we're joined today by Dr. Michael Lynch, who teaches Latin, Greek, systematic theology, and New Testament biblical theology here at Delaware Valley Classical School. Dr. Lynch is also a fellow of the Davenant Institute, which exists to retrieve the riches of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. Dr. Lynch has a PhD in historical theology from Calvin Seminary, where he focused his work, uh, recently published by Oxford University Press, on the 17th century English theologian John Davenant, who was the former Bishop of Salisbury and the delegate to the Synod of York. Today we're talking about the Reformation, um, in particular as we approach Reformation Day, which is something that we celebrate annually at the school. Uh, And so Dr. Lynch uh, will be talking a little bit about the wide-ranging impacts of the Reformation and the impacts that it has had on certainly theology, but on culture and perhaps even our governmental structure. Mike, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and congratulations, Astros fan. Uh, It hurts me to say... As much as the Yankees really just did not come out to play this this series, but uh, congratulations um, as an Astros fan, they're going to the World Series and basically go Phils at this point. Uh, I don't know about going Phils, but uh, I appreciate the Yankees not showing up so that we could make it to the World Series. Well, that's not exactly why we're here today, but uh, it is something that is clanging around in my mind. Um, it's been a long time since the Yankees have been swept four straight, so... Anyway, Mike, talk a little bit about uh, how you got interested in Reformed theology and in the Reformation itself. I'm assuming that this hasn't been a long-standing thing with you from at least childhood. So how did that come about? No, I was not uh, reading Martin Luther at the age of five. Um, I mean, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, so I grew up in a Protestant church. So Protestantism is kind of built into my kind of DNA in that sense, but knowledge of Protestantism, what, you know, uh, knowing the reasons of why I'm a Protestant and not Roman Catholic and these sorts of things, those things were hammered out much later. So in the early 2000s, my high school, late high school, early college time period, uh, I was part of what's called the Young Restless and Reformed Movement. Um, So I was connected with, or I was, I was listening to a lot of John Piper and Matt Chandler, some of these guys that were really important uh, early on in my kind of development as a, as kind of taking Christianity on as my own. And so they, those leaders in kind of evangelicalism, um, kind of reformed evangelicalism, if I can use reformed in that way, um, emphasized folk like Martin Luther and talked about them and John Calvin and emphasized their writings and once I started reading those authors, I started realizing that I really enjoyed reading them, perhaps more so than I liked reading some modern uh, evangelical writings. And um, uh, and over time, that's how I got interested in it. Of course, uh, I was, even in my undergraduate studies, I was a historical theology major. So kind of the, the kind of nexus between theology and history has always been of interest uh, in my educational career, at least. Okay. So so I'm staring at pictures of John Knox and John Calvin, respectively, on my on my table here. 
And of course, those are two names that are commonly associated with the Reformation. Let's let's take a step back and think about historically uh, wh- why do we date the beginning of the Reformation to 1517? Yeah, it's kind of a, a haphazard date uh, because when Martin Luther is nailing perhaps his theses at the church in Wittenberg uh, to to the door um, there at the church, his famous 95 theses, he's not looking to start Protestantism. Um, he's actually just trying to have an academic debate like he would uh, and like theologians like him would have all across Europe at that time. Uh, it just so happened that it was in a particular cultural time period that was fitting for a major debate to ensue, right? And even if you go read your the 95 Theses, and I, I do highly recommend reading them, although they're not the easiest to read, you will realize that he's uh, going after the abuses of indulgences. And indeed, he actually agrees that he He's not anti-indulgences, which he later on is going to be against. But at the time, he's not against indulgences. He's just against the abuse of the use of indulgences, uh, particularly because of his German context, um, uh, which is kind of a longer story. But my my point is that at this time, the printing press is just getting off the ground. And that allows uh, this document to be published once and to be read by certain people in the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, Luther is a part of that Roman Catholic Church as well, which is, I think, an important detail that we often miss. It's not like he was like outside the church attacking the church, but he is one of its members. And, um, and it's just like this perfect situation in which he had a civil magistrate who wanted to defend him and had the power to defend him. Uh, he uh, had the printing press to be able to spread his ideas. And it was that document that ended up uh, kind of setting off controversy. And that controversy led to what we call the Reformation. Okay. So Protestant theology then doesn't begin at the Reformation. No. I. So if by Protestant theology we mean theology done by Protestants, then sure. That, that would be true. That's tautological, of course. However, if by Protestant theology we mean the theology that Protestants taught, there are streams of Roman Catholic... So e- even calling the late medieval church Roman Catholic is kind of giving too much credit to Roman Catholicism because that, that, tends, to, that tends to suggest that the Roman Catholicism that we see today is of the same ilk as what we see in, say, the 15th century. But 15th century Roman Catholicism has all sorts of streams, all sorts of diversity, some of which allow Luther to exist to begin with. In other words, Luther is a stream of late medieval Christian Western theology, and he's taking, you know, various, you know, uh, he, he would be more in line with this guy on this topic and this guy on this topic and so on and so forth. And he is simply expressing that. And Protestantism is basically the, you know, kind of the coalescing of various strands of late medieval theology that we would find in, like, say, 1475. Um, so I, I, I think we need to say that 
Protestantism and the Roman Catholic Church are really themselves outgrowths of late medieval Western theology in general, if that if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So so it would be fair to say then that among other influences on Luther, Thomas Aquinas was an influence on Luther. Sure, and I mean he's he he's he's part of the Augustinian order, and the Augustinian order, as the name would suggest, was particularly they were they were kind of strict followers of Augustine and Augustine's theology and Augustine's works and it's not it's no surprise that in Augustine you have this great kind of emphasis on the doctrine of grace and that Luther is basically emphasizing that over and against abuses in the broader western church at that time which were downplaying God's grace and um, overestimating or perhaps putting too much emphasis on human merit and these sort of things. But yes, I mean, whether or not he read Thomas, in, in, indeed, actually, at the time that Luther is big, Thomas is not an important figure for anyone, basically. Roman, uh, like what we would call early Roman Catholics and Protestants alike, no one's reading uh, Thomas all that much. But some of the later scholastics, of course, were influential on him, although he's, he, he's very critical of many of them for a variety of reasons, which would... Uh, be an hour or two uh, sure. podcast, sure. as yeah. you can imagine. So, so, so talk a little bit then about the, the broader implications of the Reformation. So the Reformation had various iterations across the continent of Europe, for example, right? You've got the Scottish Reformation, and then yeah. you've got some other things happening, you know, post-1517. Um, what does the landscape of the spread of the Reformation yeah. look like? Yeah, I, I think we should note a couple things about the word Reformation. First off, um, is that most historians now call it, in, indeed, in textbooks, on the Reformation, like Reformation textbooks um, that you would have like at a college, um, it will often be the Reformations, because there were kind of, there's two other Reformations going on at the same period. One is uh, the, the Radical Reformation, which we see in the Anabaptist tradition, which is kind of its own thing, separate in some ways from Protestantism, or what becomes Protestantism. And then um, also we see the Counter-Reformation, which is there's an internal, the Roman Catholic Church is making some internal adjust, adjustments, partially because of part of Protestantism, but partially for the same reasons that Protestantism eventually kind of goes its own way. They are making reforms to the Roman Catholic Church because there are, they realize, many people in the Roman Catholic Church realize that there are some problems that need to be resolved. And so there's reformation going on everywhere, some from within and then some eventually from without. And so it's it's kind of a complex period. And then also the other reason that it's reformations, as, as, you, as you alluded to, is we call Protestantism in this period magisterial Protestantism. And the, the adjective modifying Protestantism there, magisterial, notes that the sort of Protestantism of the period was connected to the civil magistrates. In other words, this wasn't a so much a bottom-up uh, kind of uh, reformation, but it was oftentimes top-down. In other words, civil magistrates were becoming Protestant, for, oftentimes for nationalistic reasons, which we could talk more about, which are, I, I think, very fascinating. But at the end of the day, Protestantism isn't simply a theological issue, it's a political issue as well. Simply put, 
people in England or people in Germany did not like being told from people in Italy what to believe. They didn't like being told how much money should be siphoned off from their own poor people and sent to build, you know, a big cathedral in Rome. So there were, there were, there were not just theological concerns when it came to the Reformation, but strong political issues. There was, there was what we would call a sort of nationalism that was burgeoning in the period, a localism. In, in fact, you could argue that Protestantism was a champion of localism and nationalism over and against a kind of universal European church, right? They wanted local churches. They want their priests to be local. They wanted their money to be local and not being, again, sent off to places that were of no use to them. So not, not necessarily unlike some of the things that we're seeing happening culturally, politically today, you know, you're talking nationalism, that, that term can have some baggage, uh, yeah, right? Yeah, but yeah. when you talk nationalism, you, you've kind of paired it with localism. So yes. really, it's just the idea that we're, you're keeping things at a, at, a, at a very sort of concise level, approximate yeah. level. Yeah, yeah the, the church, particularly in this period, was this, to use it kind of the pejorative term of bureaucratic, kind of, it, it, it had just taken on a life of its own in where you never knew where the money was going, but you knew that it never, you knew that the decisions that were being made and the money that was being spent never seemed to be helping you. It always seemed to be helping someone else. And of course, that is kind of what is going on uh, in this period where popes and uh, cardinals are uh, lining their pockets at the expense of poor Germans. And this is a huge concern, huge concern for someone like Martin Luther. So let, let's let's jump a little bit then, and I want to jump particularly uh, to John Davenant from the perspective of uh, the Reformation and the progression of the Reformations, as you as you noted. Um, help us orient a little bit. Uh, John Davenant in the broader context of the Reformation. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, John Davenant's dates are 1572. So we might say the tail end, the very tail end of kind of the first, second, I mean, the most of the first generation reformers are dead at this point. And even many of the second generation reformers are dead because life expectancy just isn't the same back then, right? So from 1517 to 1571, they've all, all the, all the original reformers have died when John Davenant's born and he's in this next period. So, so you've, you've finally gotten yourself out of this bureaucratic mess of Romanism in which Rome dominates everything, right? You have, you have, you have gotten yourself out of that system. But, but then the question is, what does an English a properly English church look like because you were a Roman church in England. You were a Roman church in Germany. The Germans were a Roman church until the reformation. So what does Protestantism in Germany, what's it going to look like? What's it going to look like in France? What, well, France of course never really reforms. I mean, uh, so it's, it's Roman Catholic at the side, but you get the point of any of these places that, uh, get out from underneath Roman rule. They have to, they have to deal with these questions. And John Davenant is one of many theologians 
in Protestantism, but particularly in England, as he's a bishop and he's closely tied, like King James knew of him and he would have met King James, these sorts of things. He's trying to develop what a distinctly English Protestantism is going to look like. What should the church polity be in England if it's not under the Roman rule, right? What are the Protestant dis distinctives over and against Roman Catholicism? Where do they agree? Where do they disagree, right? And these sorts of things. And, and John Davin is just one of the many players in that kind of next period of what, what's often called Protestant scholasticism or Protestant uh, kind of this kind of um, confessionalization, right? Where there's a lot of confessions being written, including the Canons of Dort and other sorts of things. All of our confessions come from this period. And the reason is, is because Protestantism has to define itself. And so they have to write confessions, and that's what they do. And so Davenant is a delegate to the Synod of Dort, and he's working these things out. Yeah, he's, you know, he's he's having to deal with questions now that are intra-Protestant, right? Because within Protestantism, there's still great diversity. And some Protestants are, as some Roman Catholics were at the time, were tinkering with things like the doctrines of grace, kind of what we call the Synod of Dort is where kind of we get the five points of Calvinism. And so Davenant's dealing with these issues that are more intra-Protestant yeah, at that point. So we're heading into this this time frame where most of us in America would refer to as Halloween, right? And um, But we celebrate here at the school Reformation Day. Is the Reformation worth celebrating? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it depends on how you frame what happened. If, if you're a Roman Catholic, you know, or, or if, if you think about this as a great divorce, then it's, it's not to be celebrated, it's to be lamented. But I think that the Reformers would say that the church is only as good as the truth on which it's built. And therefore, in defense of the treasure that's been bequeathed to us, it is not just necessary, but it is laudable to defend that uh, from both the inside and the outside. And they would not want to say that they are the ones that left the Holy Catholic Church. They would argue that it's those, their interlocutors, those whom uh, the, the, the Roman Catholics, now so-called, you know, uh, of the of the 16th century, who were the ones who were leaving at least the truth of the Holy Catholic Church. And so I don't think we need to see it as a divorce. I do think we should lament the some of the feistiness among the various interlocutors of the period. I think we should uh, lament the fact that they couldn't come to greater agreement. But I think at the end of the day, if you are a Protestant at least, you should be thankful that there are people that oftentimes sacrificing their lives literally for the sake of the gospel that has been bequeathed to us in the apostolic faith delivered to us once for all. So anyways, um, I see it as, as a great blessing that not just theologically, of course, again, but even politically, right? Um, I, I, I think that there's some political payoff to what the Reformation brought. Yeah, by political payoff, are you? Do you mean specifically in in, in the term in terms of 
you know, Republicanism, uh, Republican forms of government, uh, yeah. more democratic I, aspect yeah. of governance. Yeah, no, I really do have in mind just that localism. This idea that governments are best run, at least temporal governments here on Earth, are best run locally. And that the farther away that you get, the harder it is to govern and the, the less helpful, the less apt, uh, the less fruitful such government will be. And so I, I'm appreciative of those sorts of events, which are kind of, and, and for things like the printing press and everything else, which which isn't just Reformation, but it, it's it's of that same period. And I I just think uh, the technological advances were really helpful. So, mm-hmm. so it is worth celebrating. It's a good I, thing that we celebrate. Uh, t- totally. N- not Yeah, theologically, politically, and otherwise. It's not that I don't think we, we, we don't have problems still, and that I, I wouldn't even suggest that every fruit of the Reformation has been good. However, by and large, I think it is something to be praised, not something blameworthy or something to hang one's head about. We're going to continue to celebrate it and enjoy the day. Mike, thanks for spending some time today. Appreciate your, your expertise in this area and uh, the insights. Um, that's all the time we have for this episode. Please subscribe to the View from the Valley podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, give us a review. And go out and celebrate the Reformation this weekend instead of Halloween. Until next time, grace and peace. Thank you.